I want to welcome everyone here to the South Suburban Vineyard Church. Like David Jacobs said, my name is Jordan Arsenault. I'm one of the children's pastors here with my wife, Nikki. And I'm so excited to be speaking to you this morning. And I also want to recognize those who are visiting with us for the very first time. Thank you for coming. And I want to recognize those who are listening to us through our iTunes podcast. You are more than welcome to visit us here on Sunday mornings in Flossmore. So uh, you're going to follow along with me because you you don't have a script back there. But uh, this is a picture of me from uh, 2013 uh, when I was about 250 pounds. And this picture came up in my wife Nikki's uh, Facebook memories recently. Um, uh, And when she showed uh, the picture to my 10-year-old, Cam, uh, he responded with this text. He said, uh, who deflated dad? (laughs) Um, Apparently, I'm a a pool inflatable. And, uh, you know, over the past few years, I've just been deflating since then. Um, You know, I remember this particular time in my life because I was experiencing weird uh, pains in my chest and in my arm. And I went to a doctor in January of 2014, and he he told me that I was okay. He said it was just muscle strain. Uh, But he also told me that I needed to lose 50 pounds immediately because I was obese. And uh, he also told me that I needed to get some blood work done to test for abnormalities. And I kind of just dismissed it. Like, I, I, I didn't do anything about it. But that year, in March, I drove down to the 35th anniversary of the television station that I worked for when I went to Illinois State University. And I met up with my identical twin brother. And he looked very much the same as we did in college. And um, just comparing ourselves to one another, I was kind of embarrassed. You know, that was taking pictures with my identical twin. We shared the same DNA, but we looked so much differently. And I looked at him, and I looked at myself, and I, I saw how different we looked from each other. And I thought, man, I, I really need to make a change. And I asked him at dinner that night, like, what do you do? Like, what do you do to stay trim? Obviously, I, I work in television. I work for a food show. And so I eat a lot of calories every day. So his life is vastly different. He's a medical videographer. But I asked him, like, what do you do to lose weight? And he is, first of all, very cheap. He doesn't spend a whole lot of money on food. Typically orders the least expensive thing on the menu. And so he, uh, that's how he maintains his weight. But also, he uses this app called Lose It. And has anyone heard of this app before? Um, there are different apps that are kind of like this. Um, but basically, it's a calorie counting app. And he basically told me that my weight would change as I adjusted my diet to the app's budgeted calories that's allowed for my final goal weight based on my sex and my age and my height. And plus, Lose It is filled with all sorts of like, uh, weight loss resources that, that teach you about like, making mindful choices and just being able to control your cravings. And this app was like a game changer for me. Because over the next nine months, I lost 64 pounds just by counting calories with zero exercise involved. And, and this is a before and after picture. So that's between a year, basically. So it's a, it was amazing. It was a game changer for me. So fast forward to today, and after that initial weight loss, Lose It continues to help me maintain my weight by controlling my calorie intake. But uh, you know, there are times when I forget to enter my calories. And 
this uh, trip to California to Anaheim was like a perfect excuse to like stop taking keeping track. Um, uh, you know, I'm on vacation, right? And I'm gonna be eating out a lot, and I want to go to In-N-Out Burger. I want to get that double cheeseburger and shake. And so, like, why am I like counting calories on vacation? Uh, but here was the problem: lose it wouldn't leave me alone. Um, uh, the app was constantly checking in on me with different messages, uh, like, "Hey, you haven't logged yet today. Uh, don't forget to track your calories. You stay focused and mindful on your eating." And consistency is key. Log your meals ASAP. <laughs> it was very annoying um, to see it frequently like that. And I ended up dismissing a lot of those notifications. But you know what? Lose it was right. I ended up gaining some weight on the trip. And after stepping on the scale, I quickly returned to logging my calories again. And uh, the accountability that comes from the app has become so helpful to me as I endeavor to be healthier for the sake of my family, my day job, and my responsibilities here at the church as a pastor. And I recommend this app and apps like it if you want to start your own weight loss journey. But uh, why do I bring all this up? Is this a weight loss sermon? Are we, are we going to get the church healthy again in the middle of July? Well, not so much. But... I brought up this app because it does relate to this idea of accountability and that it's much easier to stay committed to an achievable goal if you have something or someone coaching you and guiding you um, and encouraging you along the way. And also, when you get up on the wrong track, someone to remind you or annoyingly that uh, you need to get back on task. You know, in, in a room this size, at 10.30 a.m., on a Sunday morning, in a, in a church gathering, you know, I can, I can safely assume that most of us would I, at least identify as Christians. Um, I mean, some of us here might be seekers. You know, some of us might be just kicking the tires, kind of like curious about this church, about Christianity. But it's safe to say that most of us in the seats would probably say that we're believers, right? And if you identify as a follower of Jesus, then you can also call yourself, or at least you should consider yourself, a disciple of Jesus. Because a disciple is simply defined as this. We can put the definition up. A person who is a pupil or an adherent of the doctrines of another. A follower. And the whole reason most of us are disciples today is because the first disciples, the ones with a capital D, uh, described in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, they were obedient to Jesus' great commission. Right? And most of us have heard this, right? This is from Matthew 18. Uh, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples to all, uh, of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So the, those disciples were commissioned by Jesus to make new disciples, right? And then those new disciples made new disciples, and then those new disciples made new disciples, and so on and so forth, until here we are, July 23rd, 2017. All of you are here. Awesome. Over 2,000 years of discipleship. That's pretty good. But today I want to ask an important question. Are all of us also being obedient to Jesus' command to go and make disciples, to duplicate ourselves. 
Now, I think most of us are aware that we're supposed to evangelize to others who Jesus really is and that his kingdom has come and that it is at hand. But Jesus didn't command us just to make converts, right? He told us to make disciples, true followers of Jesus in real relationship with him, evidenced in both word and deed. No, he didn't just command us to download the Jesus app and reorient our entire lives around him just to then ignore the Holy Spirit's notifications, right? Leading us in our, in, to not quit our, dis- our spiritual disciplines and to follow him more closely. Amen? So it's summertime here, and we're in the midst of a sermon series that's all about relationships called Relationships Matter. And the goal of this series is to deal with one of the most important aspects of our lives, how we relate to other people. And as most of us can attest, who we are today and who we are in the future is almost certainly a result of how we interact with the people closest to us, and it affects the quality of our lives in a most profound way. And since Jesus and the apostles talk so much about relationships, we try to carve out some time, usually in June and July, to do the same. I mean, relationships must really matter to God because we all have this general call to love God and love people, right? But if I were completely honest with you, Jesus' command to go and make disciples hasn't been big on my priority list. In fact, as long as we're talking about lists, let me give you a behind-the-scenes view of what our leadership meetings look like here at the Vineyard. Uh, Every few months, we gather together as a group and discuss you know, what's going well in our various ministries and what can be improved as we work towards our corporate mission and vision for the church. And almost inevitably, our senior pastor, Gino, tells us to list out on a piece of paper all the people we're actively discipling towards Jesus. You know, and most of the time, we do keep our, this list to ourselves. But on some occasions, Gino will randomly ask us to say out loud some of the names on the paper. You know, and to my shame, uh, there's been many times where it's only been my sons, Cam and Ian, scribbled on that list. And they don't, you know, they obviously count. They're obviously important, but that's kind of a given, right? We're supposed to be discipling our kids. It's the first thing that we should be doing. Um, I mean, no one should tell us that we should be leading our kids to Jesus, right? Now, I've always had good reasons in my view for this as to why I'm not discipling people. You know, I'm working too much. My commute is too long. You know, I'm already very busy with ministry duties here at the church. I've just generally got too much going on to put too much time into discipleship. But how many of us know that one person's good reason is another person's poor excuse, right? You know, if Jesus has been given all authority on heaven and on earth, If what matters to him is what really matters, there's no good reason or excuse for not doing what he's asked us to do. We budget time for the things that are really important in our lives, and what could be more important than Jesus' great commission? So today we're going to be leaning in towards this command to create discipleship relationships. And we're going to be looking at the second chapter of Philippians, one of my favorite parts of the Apostle Paul's letters to the early church. And if you know Philippians 2, there are dozens and dozens of sermons that can be written from this part of the Bible. But when I read it recently, an entirely new application occurred to me as it relates to discipling others. And I've entitled today's sermon, 
healthy discipleship. Healthy discipleship. You know, if you want to follow along, there are Bibles at the ends of each row, and the scriptures will also be projected on the screens in front of you in the New Living Translation. Uh, We're going to start in verse 1, but before we do that, let me pray. Come, Holy Spirit. Uh, Father in heaven, thank you for making yourself visible to us. Thank you for allowing us to see you through your story. We don't have to guess what you're like because you've been opened up to us through the words of your disciples. Uh, They were kind of like first century journalists, copy edited by the Holy Spirit. And they told us that we're designed to have a relationship with you and others. Father, I ask that you speak to each person, uh, give each person an ear to hear with clarity, and open our hearts to receive whatever you have for us. Uh, Move my imperfect delivery out of the way so that your people don't become distracted, but that only your message breaks through. So we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this passage is from a letter written from a Roman prison by the Apostle Paul to a church that he helped plant 10 years before in the Macedonian city of Philippi, which today would be in modern Greece. And this is what biblical scholars call Paul's joy letter, uh, because the topic of joy comes up so frequently in his writing. So it's a very encouraging epistle, and he begins the first chapter with special greetings, as he always does. Um, He has an explanation of his current suffering, and then he has this call for us to live as citizens of heaven. And then Paul says this in verse 1 of chapter 2. Philippians 2, verse 1. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourself. Don't look out for your, only your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Amen. Uh, so I, as I read this passage again with new eyes, this, and this will often happen, you'll, you'll have a familiar piece of scripture and you'll read it again and you'll be like, wow, Holy Spirit, thank you. Um, as I read it with new eyes, I began to see a strategy emerge for how to approach the task of relating well with a few folks that I've personally been actively discipling. And the first thing I see in this letter is Paul asking the church in Philippi some introspective questions all in the first verse, that I think would be helpful in our own discipleship relationships. And the first question is, are you encouraged? Are you encouraged? He says, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Are you encouraged? Or in other words, are you inspired with courage, spirit, or confidence because of your relationship with Jesus? And it's a great question to ask ourselves, right? And it's a great question question to ask those to whom we are discipling, because if the Spirit of God is dwelling within us, there should be a noticeable difference in the way we live and the way we respond to trials and difficulties in our life. Amen? You know, there should be evidence in our lives in abounding joy and an ever-present contentment in Christ 
because we know who he is and we know who we are in him, sons and daughters of God. And the second question he asks in verse 1 is, are you comforted? Are you comforted? Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? One of the fruits of God's Spirit is peace, according to the Apostle Paul. In fact, peace of mind and heart are a specific gift that Jesus gave his own disciples when he promised them the Holy Spirit would come after he left. You know, God's church should be the least anxious reality in a world full of chaos. And feeling the comfort of the love of Christ can be a barometer for our spiritual health. And this is why I love uh, worship songs like Good, Good Father, uh, because it proclaims being loved by God is how I should identify myself, right? It's who I am. I am loved by God, and that is very comforting. Amen? The third question he asked in verse 1 is, are you friendly? Are you friendly? Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship together in the Spirit? Guys, are we getting along with each other? Are we at peace with others that we do life with together in this community of faith? If the church of God is full of people with the same devotion for Christ and the same calling and mission, we should be getting along, right? And to go along with that, the fourth question is, are you soft-hearted? Are you soft-hearted? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Are you concerned with the needs of others? Do you feel empathy and sympathy towards those you know who are suffering? And do you feel a strong desire to help alleviate their pain or discomfort? You know, if love and kindness and goodness and all these other fruits of the Spirit are symptoms of a healthy relationship with Christ, are we seeing unfulfilled needs in our Christian communities with compassionate eyes? You know, see, so these are four questions in verse 1 alone that Paul asked the church in Philippi. And these are questions, like I said, that we can first ask ourselves, and second, ask the people whom we've identified as in need of discipleship. And these questions can really be summed up in the phrase, how is your soul? How is your soul? If you hang out with our church long enough, you're likely to hear this idea of soul care. And soul care is simply a personal cultivation of our interior spiritual life with Christ. And the reason we want to tend to this is because, you know, after you become a Christian, you're very hot and heavy for the things of God, right? But over time, you can lose that initial infatuation with Jesus, and your life as a Christian can become very superficial. So instead of being spiritually disciplined in prayer, worship, study, and service to other people, we can become very good actors. You know, Jesus described uh, the Pharisees as hypocrites, which is a Greek word for actor, uh, playing the parts of Christ's followers on the outside, but dying spiritually on the inside. And we experience this in a lot of areas, right? Uh, this is why many of us go through those seesaw diets in January every year, because we make the New Year's resolution to, to get healthy, and then we just kind of fizzle out. In our romantic relationships, we can become very infatuated in the beginning, but quit trying as hard after making a full commitment in marriage. It happens. Genuine faith in Jesus is present when no one else is watching but God. It's not a surface-level thing, but personal and genuine. Right foot, left foot, walking in the same direction 
for a long period of time towards Jesus. And so good disciplers, good spiritual mentors, probe those they're mentoring with introspective questions, just like the ones Paul asked the church in Philippi. And after he asked those four questions, Paul proceeds to give the church some commands. He says, if you've said yes to the following questions, here's what you need to do. So this is Philippians 2, verse 2. Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourself. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. To paraphrase, Paul tells the church to do four different things. He says, lean towards togetherness, be selfless, be humble, and most importantly, be like Jesus. In fact, being like Jesus basically accomplishes the three previous commands entirely. And then he lays out the blueprint for a Christ-like attitude in verses 6 through 11. And these are famous verses. This is the gospel. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all names, other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Someone say amen. amen. Man, that is the gospel in a nutshell. Healthy discipleship, the kind exemplified in Paul's letter to the Philippians, points people to the ultimate standard God incarnate, Jesus of Nazareth. You know, Jesus is the perfect example of how we should live and interact with others in our time here under the sun, here on the earth. Jesus answers the questions of soul care better than Paul, better than Peter, better than David Jacob, or Gino, or anyone else who's ever lived in the human history. And Jesus was confident in his identity as God's son, and he had perfect fellowship with the Father. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, lived in perfect peace in mind, and was compassionate and tender-hearted towards those who are in need of healing, in need of freedom from demonic oppression, and in need of forgiveness and release from besetting sins. He was selfless and humble, and he gave up his divine privileges for the sake of us by dying the worst kind of death that you can think of. But even death could not hold him down, because he conquered that too by raising himself from the dead so that all of us could be raised to life again and reign with him again someday in heaven. And Paul said that the church in Philippi, and therefore the modern church today in America and around the world, should have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Now, how many of you would say, Jordan, that's, that's a big act to follow? I mean, how can any of us live up to the full and complete standard of Christ? Well, the truth is, it's impossible. And if any one of us could accomplish the perfect life that Jesus lived 
in the first century, none of us would truly be in need of a Savior. But because of God's grace for us, we don't have to be perfect because he sent his perfect son to be a perfect sacrifice for us so that all we have to do is accept Jesus as our Savior. And that compels us to live an obedient life through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Here's the great thing, though. Paul ends this chapter with two real-life examples of people who walked this out. People for whom he discipled. And the first person he talks about is Timothy. Timothy, who's helping Paul write the same letter to the church in Philippi. And Timothy is a pretty prolific character in the New Testament. And in our own lives, everybody knows somebody named Tim, right? Pretty common person people know about from the New Testament. If we skip down to verse 19, Paul commends Timothy for, for fulfilling some of the same questions that he asked the church in Philippi in verse 1. Uh, this is Philippians 2, verse 19. If the Lord is willing, I hope to send Timothy to you soon for a visit. Then he can cheer me up by telling me how you are getting along. I have no one else like Timothy who genu- genuinely cares about your welfare. All the others care only for themselves. Kind of throw a shade at some other people. He says, all the other care only for themselves and not for what matters to Jesus Christ. But you know how Timothy has proved himself. Like a son with his father, he has served me in preaching the good news. So how is Timothy's soul? How is Timothy's soul? Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Is Timothy's heart tender and compassionate? You know, what we see is Paul's active, intentional, and healthy discipling of Timothy helped produce genuine compassion, proven devotion, and faithful obedience in Timothy's life. Paul helped germinate the seeds planted years before by Timothy's mother and grandmother, who faithfully taught him the Old Testament scriptures from an early age. In the book of Acts, we find out when Paul first identified his leadership potential and chose him for active discipleship. This is from Acts 16, verse 1. Paul went first to Derbe and then to Lystra, where there was a young disciple named Timothy. His mother was a Jewish believer, but his father was a Greek. Timothy was well thought of by the believers in Lystra and Iconium, so Paul wanted him to join him on their journey. In deference to Jews in the area, he arranged for Timothy to be circumcised before they left, for everyone knew that his father was a Greek. Then they went from town to town, instructing the believers to follow the decisions made by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in their faith and grew larger every day. Timothy. Paul saw potential in Timothy early on. Paul saw a young, you know, half-Gentile, uncircumcised, but well-thought-of kid on the streets of Lystra, and he took him in under his wing. And we see Paul continue to go on missionary journeys with Timothy in the book of Acts, you know, collaborate with him on letters to the churches in Corinth and Colossus and Thessalonica, and we see continued instruction from afar for Timothy while he's a pastor in Ephesus. So we have evidence of this lifelong father-son discipleship relationship between Paul and Timothy. And the second person Paul talks about is Epaphroditus. 
Any Epaphroditus's in the room today? Does anyone know anyone named Epaphroditus? You know, he's only mentioned here in the book of Philippians, and so he doesn't get as much pub as Timothy. Uh, but we only hear good things about him here, and you'd think that more kid, people would name their kids Epaphroditus because he was such a righteous character. You know, my mom kind of talks about this, about Abel. Right, Mom? Like, how come people don't name their kid Abel? You know, we're, we're having a baby in October. What do you think? Epaphroditus? No? Um, uh, maybe I just need to visit Greece. Right? I bet you there's a lot of epaps running around Greece. This is what Paul has to say about Epaphroditus. Uh, verse 25 in Philippians chapter 2. Meanwhile, I thought I should send Epaphroditus back to you. He is a true brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier. And he was your messenger to me in my, to, help, to help me in my need. I am sending him because he has been longing to see you. And he was very distressed that you heard he was ill. He certainly was ill. In fact, he almost died. But God had mercy on him and also on me so that I would not have one sorrow after another. So I am all the more anxious to send him back to you. For I know you will be glad to see him, and then I will not be so worried about you. Welcome him in the Lord's love with great joy, and give him the honor that people like him deserve. For he risked his life for the work of Christ, and he was at the point of death while doing for me what you couldn't do from far away. So the way that Paul describes Epaphroditus is that he appears to be this hometown kid from Philippi who delivered this ministry gift to Paul from the church while Paul was in prison. And now Epaphroditus is going to be sent back to Philippi with this same letter that Paul is writing with Timothy. You know, how is Epaphroditus' soul? How is his soul as evidence in this passage? Was there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Was Epaphroditus' heart tender and compassionate? Well, Paul highlights that Epaphroditus was a true brother. He was a co-worker and a fellow soldier for Christ. And how many people know someone like that? Just a person who's compassionate, empathetic, sacrificial, and who just shows up. Now, I was a big Bulls fan in the 90s. So you can, you can ask me a lot of questions about the Bulls. My brother Josh is back there. We, we, we loved watching the Bulls championship run, runs. And if Epaphroditus played for those 90s teams... He'd probably be like a Randy Brown or a Judd Bushler, you know? Just underrated players by most standards, but someone who de- consistently, consistently delivers on defense and with rebounds. You know, someone who just, you want on the court. But in this passage, Epaphroditus actually reminds me of Michael Jordan in the sixth game of the 1997 NBA Finals, uh, commonly known as the flu game. And if you remember back, this was 20 years ago, so there might be some teenagers in the room that don't, they don't even have any clue what I'm talking about. But if you remember back to 1997, uh, Michael was experiencing flu-like symptoms in the game. Um, uh, and he ended up scoring 38 points, 17 in the second quarter. And the cameras kept on cutting to him while he was on the bench. And he just had a towel over his head and he was chugging Gatorade, and he had ice packs on, and, and uh, he was just, just in no shape to play, but he ended up playing very well that night. He had to be held up by Scottie Pippen most of the night. And uh, that's how, that sounds a lot like Epaphroditus to me. 
because Paul describes his illness in this, and he's just someone who just slogs it out because the mission of God is so important. And I imagine him getting a crash course in sacrificial ministry with Paul and getting sent back to Philippi, you know, full of the Holy Spirit, eager to put into practice all he had learned through discipleship. You know, and on a side note, I love that Paul stresses Epaphroditus' health problems because he's not only concerned with the spiritual side of Epaphroditus, but also his physical needs. And Paul does the same for Timothy, if we remember, in his first letter when he says, Timothy, don't drink only water, you know? Drink a little wine for your stomach's sake because you've got stomach problems. We also see this from the Apostle John when he writes to Gaius in, in Third John, he says, I hope all is well with you and that you are as healthy in body as you are strong in spirit. So to me, healthy discipleship seems to not only be concerned with one's spiritual well-being, but also their practical needs. So this reminds me that as I ask the people I'm discipling, how is your soul? I also need to be asking, how's your stomach? How is your physical, mental, and emotional health? How are you doing financially? And are there practical needs that myself or the church can help fulfill? And one of the biggest criticisms from the unbelieving world is that Christians don't, be, don't appear to be as concerned with visible needs as they are with spiritual needs, right? So when we encounter trials and suffering in the lives of others, we'll often send thoughts and prayers, but we don't respond with immediate and tangible help to help alleviate pain that's incurred in people. And prayer is great, right? Prayer is necessary. Prayer is a first response. But we need to be moved with compassion in practical ways, especially for fellow believers and for those who are discipling. Amen? So what are some action steps that we can take? You know, if Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, and we've committed to allow himself to call the shots in our lives, what do we need to do first in order to fulfill Jesus' command to make disciples, baptize them, and instruct them in Jesus' commandments. Well, the first step would be for us to become true, or at least truer disciples. We need to become truer disciples. You know, what we see in this progression of this particular passage is that Jesus is explained as our perfect example, right? Paul is then discipled by the risen Lord, and then Paul disciples others towards Jesus. So before we can begin the task of pursuing discipleship relationships, we have to shore up our own personal relationship with Christ. And cultivating a healthy interior life must be the first step, because it's impossible to be an example to others unless we ourselves are first following Jesus' example. And a great way to gauge your own personal walk with Christ is by asking the same questions that Paul asked of the church in Philippi. Philippi. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Or are we helpless and hopeless despite our Christian label? Is there any comfort from his love? Or do we mostly live in stress and despair? Is there any fellowship with others in the spirit? Or do we retreat to lonely corners of the church or to our homes because we don't want to face other people? Are our hearts tender and compassionate? Or do we overlook the problems of others because we're so focused on ourselves? 
We actually have a healthy, res uh, helpful resource for this. It's a booklet called How Is Your Soul? We don't have any at the table currently, but we're, they're on order. And it's just a, a devotional, and it's questions you can ask yourself, and it's, it's really helpful. It's called How Is Your Soul? And it's through Vineyard Resources. And I encourage anybody who wants to really look at themselves in an, in an introspective way, um, kind of gauge your interior life with Christ to, to pursue that resource. You know, but after we get to a mature and steady place of following Jesus in a deep and meaningful way, the second thing we can do is begin to seek out believers who want to go deeper themselves through a discipleship relationship. We need to seek new disciples. We can pray for the Holy Spirit to highlight people in our lives for whom we can give guidance and encouragement in an intentional walk with Christ. But we should, what we should be careful about is our instinct to try to fix people who don't want to be fixed. If we think of the word disciple as pupil, we need to take on willing participants who desire to learn in a humble way. My wife is a sixth grade teacher. Uh, she's a sixth grade language arts teacher in Lansing. And she's expressed to me that it's much easier to instruct students who really want to learn in her classes. And I think the best discipleship relationships are ones of mutual respect and missional intent. So we need to listen to the Holy Spirit's leading to help us identify the hopeful potential of young believers, you know, just like Paul did in Lystra when he saw Timothy, or to help us see those who have backslidden in their faith so that we can disciple them towards new faith in Jesus. And finally, and worship team, you guys can come up. As we close, the third thing we need to do is encourage and send new truer disciples to make new and truer disciples, right? We need to send true disciples to make new disciples. Paul not only formed a discipleship relationship with Timothy, but he also took him under his wing and worked alongside him in ministry to reach others. He used God's word to train and equip Timothy to, in turn, train and equip others towards the mission of God. I mean, all of you are very cool. Nikki and I love hanging out with you and your kids. Uh, but Jesus wants our family to be even bigger than this. Amen? We have a calling to our families, communities, workplaces, and to the rest of the world to make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we need people like Timothy. And we need people like Epaphroditus. And we need people like Mike and Annie. And we need people like Denise. And we need people like Judy. We need them to continue the work laid out by Jesus and our spiritual fathers, to continue in us until Jesus finally returns to take us to our heavenly homeland, prepared for us. We are ambassadors for the kingdom of God, and we need to recruit faithful new citizens to worship the king and to do his will here on the earth. Amen? Amen. So where are we at with healthy discipleship? Where are you at? Now, some of you here today may be in a place today where you feel convicted. You may feel like you're falling down on the job when it comes to following Jesus' command to go and make disciples. And today was a reminder of that, but you don't know where to start. And I just want to say, as a children's pastor, I feel like the best place to start is with kids and teenagers. Whether you're a parent or an aunt or uncle or a grandmother or a grandfather or you have friends with children, nearly all of us have connections with younger people who need a mentor to model and show them how to live out the Christian life. 
And as a church, we want to partner with you to teach these kids about Jesus. But we only get to see them for two hours every week. It's up to disciplers like you to invest time and energy into their lives so they can mature and grow in their faith. The other of you may want to disciple towards Jesus folks who are backslidden in their faith or maybe folks who've experienced major or minor setbacks in their personal lives. Pray that the Holy Spirit would enable you to walk beside them as they return to new faith in Jesus so that they can experience the peace, comfort, fellowship, and soft-heartedness they once had as new believers. And some of you here today believe that you're in no position to disciple others. In fact, you may feel as though it's you who desperately needs to be discipled. Well, truth be told, all of us need to be discipled as we disciple others. But if you're in a place where you feel like you desperately need it, um, seek out pastors like myself. You know, seek out ministry coordinators, small group leaders, worship team members, and other seasoned believers in the church that appear to be walking out their faith in a healthy and functional way. Seek out folks in which you would see virtuous qualities that you want in your own life so that they can pray for you and encourage you as you commit to becoming a true and healthy disciple of Jesus. Today I'm going to close with a prayer that I've adapted from the previous chapter of Philippians to encourage us as we begin to walk this out this week. Let me pray. Come, Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that our love will overflow more and more, and that we will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding of who you are and who we are in you. We want to fully understand what really matters to you so that we can live pure and blameless lives until the day of Jesus' return. Father, may we be always filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in our lives by Jesus. For this will bring you much glory and praise to you. Help us to seek you and to form deep and meaningful relationships with others through discipleship. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.